But I want to encourage you to turn, uh, take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at uh, verse 1 through 17. Matthew chapter 1, beginning verse 1 and through verse 17. Over the last uh, several weeks, we've been in a series of thinking about the, uh, the theme or the idea of the seed of the woman in uh, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And after the, the fall, after sin had come into the world, God turned to both the serpent and to the woman, and he cursed the serpent, said, that, you know, the, the ground is going to, that's what you're going to be doing all of your days. And then made the statement, and I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And spoke of how the serpent was going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman was going to strike the head of the serpent. Now, when we first talked about that, the idea was is that the, the serpent, the seed of the serpent, was going to cause a blow, if you will, to the seed of the woman. But it wasn't going to be a mortal blow. But the seed of the woman was going to crush the head of the serpent. So it was, it was going to be a, a, a mortal blow that was going to take place. And it's going to destroy the serpent, so to speak. And so the serpent is, um, is pictured in Scripture as Satan himself that has come and to thwart God's good creation. And through the disobedience of the man and the woman sent into the world... And this is where the curse comes from. This is where all the chaos that we have, death and sickness and all kinds of disasters, is a consequence because sin has affected everything. Um, it is a very pervasive power. But God did not leave it like that. He, he brought forth a prophecy, and he spoke to the woman and about her seed. And one of the things that we've been doing is we've been going through the book of Genesis and thinking about how that theme is actually developed, that there's very... There's, you know, at the outstart of this, you have actually two lineages that take place. You have the lineage of Cain, which represents the seed of the serpent. And then you have the lineage of Seth, which represents the seed of the woman. And then perpetuating through that, that lineage of Seth comes some of the, the high mark characters that we think of as it relates to Scripture. Now, just to be clear, that ethnicity is not the basis of whether one is determined to be the seed of of the serpent of the seed of the woman. The basis of that is their faithfulness to the Lord and faithfulness to God. So the reason that Cain and his lineage was the, the seed of the serpent is because of his disobedience to God. He would not give full worship to God. And then when God confronted him with that, instead of repenting of that and making correction, what he did was he took out his anger on his brother Abel who presented a worship that was acceptable to, to the Lord. And so that's why those lineages go in, in that offshoot, not because there is necessarily something ethnically about Cain. They both came from the same, the same woman. The, the prophecy was given to Eve. In fact, when Eve is, uh, when Cain is conceived, um, the, Eve actually makes a statement of hope as it relates to Cain. And then we see how this develops and the narrative continues on and on. And so through the lineage of that, that seed, that seed of the woman, goes south. And then we talked about Abraham. And how Abraham, through him and through his seed, that his descendant, 
that God was going to bless the nations. Now, one of the things that we've been talking about specifically is how this word seed or descendant has in its context, it has a singular descendant. So the word descendant can be, it's a collective noun, so it looks singular, but it can also, it can mean many. But there's been some specific things that we've seen in the text that has given us an indication that whenever the word seed is mentioned or descendant is mentioned in Genesis, that it actually has a particular descendant. And this is necessarily true as it relates to the promise that's given to Abraham that from your seed I will bless all of the nations. From your seed is going to come the promise. And then we continue to trace that seed to Isaac and to Jacob. And then finally, at the end of Jacob's life, he calls all of his sons together and he gives a blessing to them. And the blessing, typically in that day and age, it goes to the oldest son. And so as Jacob is giving the blessing to his son in uh, relation to their age, he goes to the firstborn son, the secondborn son, and then he comes to his thirdborn son, to Judah, and he gives him this incredible blessing that relates to what's going to come out of, out of him through his seed, through his descendants, descendant. There is going to be one who's going to be a king. And then we, we haven't had time to really kind of trace that all the way through the trajectory of the Old Testament. But when Samuel is looking for a king after things didn't go well with Saul, he comes to Jesse, the house of Jesse. And in the text, it tells us that Jesse was from the tribe of Judah. And from Jesse's son, he anoints David to be the king over Israel. And then to David, God gives a covenant to him and said that you're, it will never pass, that your descendant, that your seed will occupy this throne forever. Now, as we've been kind of going through this, I've already kind of given you the indication of where, where this has taken us. It, it takes us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that descendant. He is that seed that was promised to the woman, that he is the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. And he has crushed the serpent's head when he came to earth and he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross for our sins and he rose again on the third day and he delivered a mortal blow to the serpent. Now, there's, there's the question, I, I tried to address this, if, if he's delivered the mortal blow to the serpent, why is it that the serpent is still raging? Well, I spoke of it in this analogy that whenever you, um, you know, you crush the head of a reptile or you take their head off, that their, their, their bite is still effective and aggressively effective even though that they're, they're going to die. It's just, it's a reflex. And so that's the way that we can picture of what's going on between the age of Jesus' ascension until his coming is that the, the serpent, his head is being crushed, but his bite reflex is still very strong. And then when the Lord comes again, he will finally and fully put that serpent down and his bite will be no more. So that, that's what we're looking for and that's kind of the trajectory that we've been going on. And one of the ways that we've been seeing that is to, is to bring up the genealogies, especially in the book of Genesis. And interestingly enough, that the only two gospel writers 
that narrate anything related to the birth of the Christ child, they have a genealogy. So Mark doesn't have a genealogy, John doesn't have a genealogy, but when it comes to the birth narratives of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a genealogy. And really what it's showing us is how God is working in the context of history. And I think more specifically is what it's showing us, is it's showing us how the seed of the woman is being perpetuated. And here he is now in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to be looking at Matthew's genealogy, but if you read Luke's genealogy, that it goes all the way back to Adam. It goes all the way back to the beginning. And traces, traces Adam all the way to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we're going to be looking at Matthew's account as it relates to his genealogy, as it functions on two of the prominent seeds that we see in Old Testament. You see the blessing that comes from Abraham's seed, and also we see the, the messianic identity that comes from the seed of David. And so obviously Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has his 12 sons, which include Judah, and then from Judah comes David, who is the king. And as far as the Old Testament and the Jewish people were concerned, is that he was the, the, really the, the essence of what it meant to be a good king. If we could just get another king like David, things would be so much better. And all the kings were measured by whether they walked in the ways of their father David or whether they didn't. And so from Abraham, from the seed of Abraham, from the seed of David comes the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice how this begins. I'm not going to be reading through all of these names, but I, I want you just to get somewhat of a sense of it of what's actually going on here. So notice it starts in verse 1. It says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. In the beginning of verse 2, it starts with Abraham. And it makes its way, making sure to include David. And then again, look with me in verse 17. And it says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until captivity in Babylon are 14 generations. And from the captivity in Babylon until Christ are 14 generations. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we consider his word this morning. Father, we ask that you will speak to us through your word. Help us to understand this the great unveiling of your salvation in the context of history starting at the very beginning. And may we even say that it goes even before the beginning. Well, we are told that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So even in eternity past, you purpose to bring the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, that slain lamb for our sins. And so, Father, help us to see this in the text. Help us to rejoice in your salvation and give us hope that one day, one day again, Jesus will come. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin thinking about this genealogy, I just want to just kind of make some brief remarks as it relates to that. And I know some of you are thinking uh, brief and chuckling to yourself, but I am going to be brief this morning. Uh, the, notice the opening phrase, the book of genealogy, which is actually comparable to that of John's opening phrase, which is in the beginning. 
And that's literally what this could be translated as in the beginning. And I think there is somewhat of a parallel also, especially as we're considering the seed of the woman and, and where we actually encounter that for the very first time. It's in the book of Genesis. And Genesis means that very thing, the book of beginnings. Speaking about the beginning and the origin of, of this world and, um, and the origins of, of, uh, of, of God's salvation and his redemption and him revealing himself in the context of, of history. And what this phrase does is it, it underscores the theme of what follows, complete fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. And Matthew is interested in showing how God has brought about his plan of salvation, the seed of the woman, who is the son of David and also the son of Abraham. And this concept is also clarified in verse 17 with, again, the mention of Abraham and David. So let's just think about why it's important that the Christ child be linked with David and Abraham. We're going to start with David, and the reason we're going to start with David is because that's how Matthew starts with it. He starts with the son of David, and then he talks about the son of Abraham. Now let's just think about what it means for him to be the son of David. As we talked last week about Judah and the prophecy of the blessing that's given to him that's related to kingship, it speaks about the messianic identity of the one who was going to come from Judah. And when I say messianic, I'm speaking about the one who was anointed. And in the Old Testament, there were only three offices that required anointing. One was prophet, the other was priest, and then, of course, the king. And so, at least when we think about it in respect to Judah and David, when we talk about him being messianic, we're thinking about his kingship. So the, the son of David is emphasizing that Jesus the Christ is the king. In fact, Matthew is really preoccupied with this in his gospel because he uses this title, Son of David, 17 times throughout his gospel, which is more than any other New Testament book. In fact, the whole purpose of this genealogy is to trace Jesus' legal lineage in order to show him as a legitimate king. And David's place in this genealogy is clear. He was the king, and he became the ideal king, and he was the one on whom all of Israel focused his hope from, uh, from the, the time that he passed on and even into the exile. As God's people were exiled into Babylon, they still had this hope that the Christ was going to come, that the son of David was going to come. And this was especially intense during Jesus' own day. As they were being occupied by Roman authorities, they were looking for the king, the son of David, he was going to come, and he was going to free them from their slavery, so to speak, under the occupation of, of Rome. And so all over the Old Testament, we can see the significance of David and the role that he played. In fact, it was Isaiah who prophesied, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So the emphasis is to show that Jesus is the son of David, which means that he is God's king, God's forever king, the only one true king. Now, what should be understood as we're, as we're thinking about this lineage and how Jesus is the son of David and how 
Matthew trying to portray him in that manner, that he's going to be like David, but he is not David. He's going to be more than David. And to make this um, clear is that there are references to David and Solomon. And then if you'll note in verse 6, it notes, or I'm sorry, yes, verse 6, it notes Uriah. It says, Then Jesse begot David the king, and David the king begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. And so every person that reads that knows what that line actually means. It means the scandal that related to David and Bathsheba where he committed that atrocity with her and then he committed an atrocity against Uriah and he tried to cover everything up. And so even though in their minds and in their hearts when they, when they considered the, the whole realm of David's life in comparison to the other king, he was the ideal king. Matthew is portraying Jesus as more than just David. He's not going to have this scandal. He's not going to have this blemish that Jesus to Christ is going to be a better David. He's going to surpass David in a way that nobody would have ever considered or ever imagined. So what is needed is necessarily not another David, but a better David. A king who is perfect and a king who is holy. And that's who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And then we also see that he is the son of Abraham. He's the descendant of Abraham or the seed of Abraham. And it's quite obvious why Matthew would start with, would speak of Abraham. He's the father of the Jewish nation. The genesis of how God would deal with sinful humanity actually starts with the covenant that he made with Abraham. The position in which Genesis puts the narrative of, of Abraham is truly significant. Because at the end of chapter 11, we see that sin has once again overtaken the whole world. God's already brought a flood in chapter 6. He destroys all of humanity. He reconstitutes humanity in Noah's lineage. And then once, once the, the earth begins to populate through Noah, the sin problem is still there. And so what's the solution? Well, the narrator, the narrator of Genesis, Moses, believes that Abraham is the beginning of the solution, especially in chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3, where it speaks about the blessing. Uh, Abraham is going to bring the blessing, and this is to be a counterpart or contrast between what we see in Genesis 3, which is sin brings what? Curse. It brings the curse. And here, in just those three verses, we see five usages, almost in a machine gun style, with Abraham, the blessing, the blessing, the blessing, the blessing. In fact, if you heard me preach two weeks ago on Abraham and the blessing of Abraham, you probably got tired of actually hearing that word, blessing. Probably said it over a hundred times, but that was kind of the emphasis there. And so, being the son of Abraham speaks about how Jesus is going to be the blessing, how he is going to reverse the curse. Now, I think one of the things that's important to know that when you read Matthew, you will note that Matthew is a very Jewish book. In fact, it starts here with the, the beginning of what it means to be a Jew. The father of the Jews, which is Abraham. The king of the Jews, which is David. It doesn't go all the way back to Adam, where all of humanity came from, including all the Gentiles. But it starts with Abraham. Jewish history. 
So Matthew is a very Jewish book, but at the same time, Matthew is mentioning Abraham to remind his reader that through Abraham was not just going to be the blessing of the Jewish nation, but through Abraham is going to be the blessing to all the nations. So this son of David, this seed of Abraham, is not just going to bless one nation, but he's going to bless all peoples. And Matthew does this in a strategic way, not only by mentioning Abraham, but also as you turn over to chapter 2 of Matthew, you will see who is it that comes to worship the king. It's the Magi. The Gentile Magi, they come and they worship him and they bear gifts that are only fit for a king. Not the Jews. They didn't come to worship him. But the Gentile Magi, and then when you come to the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives his commission and tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them and teaching them all the things that he has given them. Now, one of the things I want to bring up here in this text that is, is, I think is important and maybe for us to think about and to consider is if you'll notice there, when you read through these 17 verses, it becomes re- almost redundant, but it's intentional in the way that it's developed. In, in verse 2, Abraham begot Isaac, then Isaac begot Jacob, and then all throughout, it's just repetition. A different name, begot this, begot that, begot so on and so forth. And then when you come to verse 16, to the end of the genealogy, and it tells us, And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So the use of this word begot, or in some translations, the father of, is significant and serves a purpose. The word begot, or the father of, emphasizes procreation and references the father's role in the birth process. Or maybe we could say it another way, If we were translating this, we could start with Abraham's descendant was Isaac, or Abraham's seed was Isaac. And then Isaac's seed was Jacob, and then Jacob's seed was Judah, and so on and so forth. But the the idea of begot has this this implication of being born of, and especially with the, the, the mention of the male, it includes the procreation process that the, the male is actually involved in, which is really significant when we get to the end of verse 16. And then if you'll notice that it does not tell us that Joseph begot Jesus. All of a sudden, it stops. That, that's what we're to expect as we're reading. Here's another, here's another male. His wife is Mary. He's supposed to begot Jesus with Mary, but... It's strangely missing, isn't it, in verse 16? It doesn't tell us Joseph begot Jesus. What it tells us is that Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Notice there. It's Mary who was born the Christ. Not Joseph, but Mary who is born the Christ. Now, this... The point of this is that this is a certain reference to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. That it was unique. That it did not come through the normal or natural procreation process. It came through the miraculous act of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want to say here about this, and I want to, I want to press, press this hard, and I want us to think about it with respect to all the biblical revelation, especially as we're considering 
the seed of the woman. I don't know if you remember that far back, but I made the statement in Genesis 3 and verse 15 where it references the seed of the woman that this is the only time that we find this in the book of Genesis and really all throughout Scripture where the emphasis is on the seed of a woman. Whenever the genealogies are listed, it's always the man, the seed of the man, the descendant of the man. But in Genesis 3, and it's also again in Genesis 4, at the very end, it references how the, the, uh, the seed comes from the woman, or at the end of Genesis 4, how Seth comes from the woman, and then after that, the woman basically disappears as it relates to genealogy. And then all of a sudden, something strange happens again. The listing of all these men, the begot, and it comes to Joseph. It doesn't connect Joseph to Jesus. It connects Jesus to Mary. And so I don't know if this is intentional on Matthew, because we know that the Bible is written by different authors, and they write with their, their own personality, their own, their own style, but at the same time, we believe in what's called verbal inspiration, that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so even though there are numerous authors written over thousands of years, there's essentially one author. And that's why there is this incredible unity from Genesis to Revelation, where you can trace so many themes together, and you think it almost seems like one author wrote that. And the reason you, you feel that way is because that's exactly really what happened. And so the, the point that I'm trying to make is that this may be a subtle way or subtle connection in the Gospel of Matthew, where he is hinging this born of Mary, the seed of the woman. Because it, it, it's so unique, it's so strange, it's so out there to be reading this, especially if you're reading this in the context of this century, and you're expecting the genealogy to be linked to a man, but it's actually linked to a woman. And so maybe this was Matthew's subtle way of saying, listen, Jesus is the seed of the woman. And he's come to crush the serpent's head. So what does this genealogy tell us? It tells us of the progress of the seed of the woman throughout history. It is the history of God in this world. Begin with Adam, according to Luke's genealogy, then Abraham and David, and finding its way to King Jesus, also including all sorts of people who find their way into the people of God. And at each stop in the genealogy, it emphasizes that none of these people are the seed of of the woman that was promised. None of these people are the seed that's going to crush the serpent's head. Abraham is not the seed. Isaac's not the seed. Jacob's not the seed. And even David is not the seed. The seed who will crush the serpent's head is the Lord Jesus, God's forever king. Now, the birth narratives is not just a story that warms our heart. It's great and it's wonderful. The birth narrative is actually God's salvation in the context of history. With the birth of the Christ child, you may not even think this, you may not even know this, but at the birth of the Christ child, there was something that was happening in the cosmic drama, the unseen realm. And it actually played out in real space and time. When you read Matthew chapter 2, the Magi are coming to worship the king, the king Herod, what does he do? Does he want to come worship the king? No, he wants to kill the Christ child. 
So if you can't find the Christ child, he's going to kill every child two years and younger. And so the coming of this child, which seems innocent, which seems harmless, which seems like he can't do any damage at all, he sent all of Satan and the dynamic powers and the sinful spiritual world into a scurry. Because God had brought his salvation. He had brought his king. He had brought the one he was going to crush the head of the serpent. In fact, we actually see that through, through John in his revelation what's going on behind the backdrop. We're, we're enjoying the magi, the king, the shepherds. We love this story. All things seem good. All things seem great. But in Revelation 12 and verse 4, it tells us that when the child was born, it says, and the dragon, who was the serpent, stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child. If he was so harmless, why was it that the serpent wanted to devour the child? Because he knew that child was going to grow and he was going to crush his head. And the good news for us today is that that seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ, he crushed the head of the serpent at Calvary and through his resurrection. And now he sits enthroned on high as a king, and he rules, and he reigns, and he's coming again to finally and fully crush that serpent's head. Let's pray.